We read in Psalms 11, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can I say, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows and set their arrows against strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright and heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves the just, upright men will see his face. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Ray, for reading our passage today. If you do not have a Bible, um, please... Oh. Which one? The, that bur- the Bible was? Being able to read that it's your birthday? July the 4th my birthday. Happy birthday, Ray. That's awesome. They, uh, well, I'm glad to give you a chance to read God's Word. It is the best gift we have, isn't it? This, uh, and I, um, I, this morning, we um, again will be in Psalm chapter 11. And I, um, I want to encourage you, if you do not have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. You are not stealing from a church. This is for you. If you know somebody else who could use this, actually, why am I wearing my mask? Um, so some of us are wondering, where, when do I wear a mask and when do I not? We're in a weird time, aren't we? But here's what I want to encourage you. We wanna, and I want to just commend some of you who are just hate wearing masks and nonetheless you have this morning to serve others. This is, this is, that is a practical demonstration of love, especially in these times. Um, and uh, St. Louis County, St. Louis City have changed their requirements to now they're requiring them in uh, businesses to wear masks, particularly in times of entrance and exiting. So here's what I would ask that you do at the very least is to, because uh, I recognize some have health issues um, and other uh, frustrations when it comes to face masks. If you would when, uh, wear a face mask whenever you move from your seat. Okay, that's a good rule of thumb, okay? Caleb's mentioned that already. Whenever you move from your seat, if you would wear a face mask, that would be helpful for most people. But if you need to uh, take one off, obviously I'm not, gonna t- I'm not gonna wear one when I preach or when you sing. That is entirely appropriate. We'll, in- we'll inform you as things do change. If they do, we wanna keep you safe and encouraged during these times. So nonetheless, um, I, uh, we're gonna be in the book of Psalms. Um, I hope you're gonna keep your Bibles open this morning. Um, and. I have to tell you, I have been looking forward to getting into the book of Psalms for some time. We uh, just finished, or we paused from a sermon series in Mark's gospel, the gospel according to Mark, and for the rest of the summer, we're going to be, over the next nine weeks, be looking at Psalms one by one. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and, uh, and there's honestly uh, no, no book quite like it. I, it was one of the first books I uh, first read. How many of you, this book of Psalms was one of your first books that you read in the Bible? Many of us it is. For many of us who struggle to read the Bible, it is one of the books that we go to the quickest. Um, there's no other book, I think, that quite uh, gets us um, like the book of Psalms. Um, and I think 
importantly, no other book that quite shows us what a a relationship with God sounds like, like the book of Psalms. As we walk through the Psalms this summer, one by one, as we listen in on this prayer book, this song book, each one of these prayers, we're going to be learning how a love for God sounds and how a love for God is nurtured. And I hope you're as excited as I am to open up this book. It's, it's, uh, we're going to find some words that are hard words, some that are words of comfort, but regardless of God, that remains constant. And it's no coincidence that Jesus quoted and identified with the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. And, the, and this is, in fact, the most important piece about the book of Psalms is that the Psalms are ultimately about Jesus. And I think we're going to see that clearly today. So if you would, keep your Bibles open to Psalm chapter 11 as we find David in a time of crisis, which I don't think any of us can empathize with right now. I, actually, I think as a culture, I don't know how many other crises we could face in our lives. In fact, if I was to ask you, you probably could give me on uh, one hand or two hands, you could count up all the crises, crises that you are facing. The question is, is does Christianity... Christian faith make any practical difference when it comes to a time of crisis? I think it does. And I think Psalm 11 helps show us in small measure how it makes this difference. And so we're going to jump into the psalm actually in two parts right away. We're going to be looking at this part in, uh, 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 we're going to look in two parts, spiraling in crisis, which I think is what many of us do, and standing in crisis. And so if you would, let's turn to Psalm chapter 11 Um, verse 1. And before we jump in, as we've already read this verse uh, a couple times, my father-in-law is a pastor as well. I I was telling somebody just yesterday that he, my father-in-law is a hero of mine. Uh, He has just done pastoral ministry right, but even he would say, he sent this quote from Facebook, uh, wishing I'd taken better notes in Bible school when I took that elective, how to pastor through a global pandemic, a recession, and another civil rights movement. This isn't exactly what I went to school for. Times like these, we're at a time where crisis seems to stack on top of crisis. So much so that many of us just want to check out. So many of us, we, we, it's, it's hard not to empathize with the quote in verse one. We want to flee like a bird to a mountain. Tell you what, find me the mountain and we would want to flee toward it. But then I think many of us, we worry that that mountain would be erupting or something. I mean, this, we're in a time where we wish there was somewhere to flee. It's, I find we find, uh, whether it's this time or other times, it's only a matter of time in which we face moments in our lives where life just feels too much to handle. It may be increasing pressures from your boss, a terrible fight with a close friend, an unexpected accident, Maybe finding out after all this time that you didn't get in to the school, that you're being let go, that the cancer is back, that she didn't make it out of surgery, that he's leaving you. Do you know what it's like to feel certain that you're going to crack under the pressure? That you just, you can't take one more loss in your life? Days where... There just doesn't seem to be a way out. Moments when life just feels too much to handle. Anyone ever experienced times like this? 
One of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is about our lives. In fact, it might shock us at how honest it speaks about our lives. And in Psalm 11, it's honest about the internal spiral that begins. A spiral that progresses, I find, and I think in this passage and just personally, progresses in three stages. Let's look at the first of these. Panic. Verse 2, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. This psalm describes David as, a, as being stalked um, by those who are as skilled as they are hostile. There's, a, there's all these streaming shows, I think, out, but there's one right now that's based on an old short story called The Most Dangerous Game about a man who's being chased through the streets of the city as someone's trying to kill him. Well, that's being played out in this passage, that David, is, uh, he's got um, enemies who have him in their scope. They're looking for any opportunity to bring him down, and they are moments away from pulling the trigger it may be those who are trying to undo David at various points in his life uh, through word to dishonor and slander him. It may be at points in which it was literal soldiers breathing down his neck. We're not sure. Regardless, I think many of us know the voice of panic when we hear it. Of course, this is someone talking to David in our psalm. We're not told who it is. It may be loved ones, it may be family, friends, or close advisors around David that are afraid for David and want David to get out of there precisely because they love him. They see the stakes and they want him to own the stakes so he can get to safety. Have you ever had someone close to you who means well but stokes the fires of anxiety in you? Someone who's a bit too honest with you? Have you ever left a conversation saying, well, I wasn't worried about that before, but I certainly am now. Then again, it may actually be David's own heart that he's talking back to, talking back as he does in Psalm 42 or 43. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's looking at himself in the mirror and preaching back. Sometimes it's this this, this, this pitchy, excuse me, pitchy voice of desperation and uh, uh, concern. It doesn't come from outside ourselves. It comes from within ourselves. It comes from our own brains, in fact. This pitchy voice of desperation. Some of us, even right now, are just trying to hold it together, and we hope nobody notices as our mind spins and spins and spins and spins. If only we could just get our bearings, uh, if only we could get, just gain our footing, but it, then we're not sure where the next attack, the next loss is going to come from. It. Notice Davis, David, I mean, the words that are being spoken to David, David's enemies aren't just shooting at him, they're shooting from the dark. He can't even see where the next attack is going to come next. Panic. This leads to the second stage, despair. Look again to verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What exactly is the speaker freaking out about here, the foundations that he's worried are being torn up? Well, it's as if the camera, which has been zoomed in on David, zooms back. And he's worried not only, the speaker's not worried just for what threatens David, but for what this is going to mean for the rest of society, for everyone else around him. As the speaker sees it, the persecution of David is a sign and the cause of something much larger to worry about. The sign of something systemic, something structural, the decline of something corporate in nature. This is the real horror that the foundations are being destroyed. You might say 
he went from being worried about an individual injustice to something at a systemic nature, which I realize is fairly loaded terminology these days. We hear about in the news something called systemic racism, or we hear systemic injustice, and there's a lot of controversy about where this is located and how it results. I realize that it's loaded terminology, but I think the concept, regardless of what we label it, is something that the Bible doesn't shy away from. The fact is, according to the Bible, when sinners sin, it affects the world around us. That seems pretty self-explanatory, and not just human persons. Sin has a way, in fact, of infecting human systems in one way or another, often in ways that affect generations to come. To put this in another way, sinners bring their sin with them in the things that they make, or as in Psalm 11, in what they tear down. Maybe neighborhoods or societies or institutions or legislatures or laws. Human sinners don't leave their sin at the door, but they bring it with them so that the very best things, even the very best things, still end up falling short of God's will and violating his character. Christians have categories for this, of looking at a world with discontent and saying, that falls short of my God's will. And so long as it is, we can call that thing sinful. We know that there is only one kingdom that is truly just, and that is the one that Christ himself will rule over. Let me give a few examples. This weekend, we're celebrating America's birthday, our Independence Day, and I, like you, lit off some fireworks. Actually, for the very first time, it was a ton of fun, okay? And I didn't blow anything up, okay? Other than the firework, not myself, okay? This, uh, our Independence Day, uh, today of all days, we have reason to praise God for our national independence especially for those who do not enjoy those same independences. Uh, Yet, as we binge-watch Hamilton or blow our stimulus checks on uh, fireworks, we are reminded that independence was was not and has not been experienced by all Americans in the same way, whether on that first Independence Day or many after. Our history reminds us that The Constitution, which we are so grateful for, once allowed for human beings to own other human beings and defined black people in the U.S. as less human than non-black people in the same country. Right now, we're wrestling as a culture with the ways that the deliberate racism of individuals became something bigger than that, with how deliberate racism shaped and sustained something at a structural level. Now, we may disagree and often do about what are the signs of that and what do we do next. We can say that we are affected by our sin. We not only sin, we are sinned against, and we are affected by a general brokenness that is caused by sin in the world that we're in. Even if we don't consciously perpetuate it in our attitudes and behaviors, these things can still affect us at a systemic level. Let me give another example that may be easier for some of us to empathize with. We're reminded this week that the legal killing of unborn children was once again protected, even celebrated in the courts. This particular injustice, of course, begins with individuals. Everyone involved in the whole process of abortion is accountable in some manner or fashion. Individuals are responsible, and we will stand before God, as all of us will when 
because of our sin as individuals, but the sin of abortion has also worked its way into the structural arena, into the systems of society. In either case, and I recognize some of you may disagree very much with where I'm coming from, Christians mourn with the speaker in Psalm 11 that the foundations are being torn apart. I don't mean the foundations of American ideals or the foundations of conservative values. I mean the foundations which God means for every society to rest upon. The foundations of his justice, of his truth, of his righteousness. The sins of individuals, here's what they do. They pull a plow behind them. They tear up the very foundations of society. As far as the speaker sees it, the world is falling apart. And if so, it's not just one righteous man that is going to suffer, it's many. I'm not going to lie, sometimes I wonder if the world is falling apart. Not just in terms of the injustices we see so here, here close to home, but I think of the fierce persecution my brothers and sisters in Christ face around the world that is sanctioned by their own government. If you're like me, we can feel powerless, hopeless, wondering, what can the righteous do? But I fear that panic and despair often spiral into a third stage, flight. This is, in fact, the main response the speaker wants, isn't it? Panic and despair have led him to conclude that there is no option, no other option than to flee like a bird to the mountain. So far as he sees it, there, there's just no options that are left. Can you empathize? It's often in the beginning or the midst of a crisis that we begin to contemplate the unimaginable options we were never considering we now consider we become willing to do anything to just make it stop to get safe to get secure to get stable the tire has blown and we are looking for the exit ramp ken sandy president of peacemaker ministries an organization that specializes in conflict resolution and doing so from the scriptures points out that the response of flight in the midst of conflict and crisis, the response of flight, of fleeing like a bird to the mountain, it comes in many different forms. It may be pulling away from a relationship, quitting a job, filing for a divorce, or changing churches. In its most extreme cases, flight can even look like abortion or suicide. In crisis, you see, it's difficult for us to think clearly. It's, especially in severe crisis, crisis has a way of making us just desire any way out. And I don't know about you, but I feel this especially for people that I love, when I watch their lives fall apart, when, I, when circumstances seem to stack up against them, when I have pastor friends who grieve yet another family that they have cared for and loved leave their church or make another cruel accusation. Sometimes I just want to tell them to flee, get out of there. The problem is, is that the speaker is only thinking in secular terms. The speaker's perspective is only informed by fear. The speaker imagines that safety is ultimately in our hands. The spiral is common. You might even call it natural. But this is where Christianity makes a real practical difference. This is where it changes how we navigate crisis. And I want to look at here at the second half of our passage, standing in crisis. I mentioned this before, uh, yeah, I've mentioned this, but uh, you have anybody in your life who uh, is really good in a crisis? I, I definitely do. I have a good mentor friend who showed up for me in a crisis in our own life and preached for me last week when our son was in the hospital. My friend Jim is like that. What makes someone good in a crisis? 
You might say that they're able to stand in the midst of circumstances, even when circumstances batter them like waves. It's as if they carry a kind of confidence that sees past the dust and the pain of the crisis itself, and even as they sense their own pain in the midst of it, they're compelled by an even deeper sense to press on. You know anyone like that? I want you to think about the crises that you have faced. Have you ever had someone, again, well-intentioned, well-meaning say to you, they offer some entirely unhelpful cliche like, every cloud has a silver lining. Or maybe this, maybe this is just a blessing in disguise. The sun will come out tomorrow. It's fascinating. And the verses we're about to talk about, David never offers us a cliche. He never rebukes the speaker for being overly dramatic. He certainly doesn't preach back the power of positivity. Instead, seeing the same bleak circumstances in front of him, hearing the advice of a counselor or his own temptation to take flight, how does he respond? He argues back. How could you even say that? What kind of conviction compels that kind of response? To answer back at that kind of counsel, how could you even say that? Well, I think three truths that stand out that David is grounded in, even when there doesn't seem to be any other way out. Truth number one, God's seat is secure. Verse four moves the focus from rather severe circumstances, even the larger social concerns, to God himself, specifically to where God is located, where God is ruling from. At first glance, even when I first read this, in fact, the first two parts of verse 4, what it mentions, where God is ruling from, they seem to be saying the same thing, and certainly they are related, but each part, I think, is telling us something slightly different about God and something vital for navigating our own suffering, our panic and despair. Starting with the second, God's throne is a heavenly one. What does this mean? It means the king that we depend on doesn't live in the White House, can never be impeached or voted out, and even as our lives seem to be shaken upside down like a snow globe or torn up by a jackhammer, God's throne never moves. As we panic, God will never panic. Even as we despair, God does never despair. Even as we flee, God remains. And just in case we might think of God as, well, cold and aloof, as unfeeling, as distant and removed from the nitty-gritty pain of our lives, David says first that God is in, the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, the first draft of this psalm was likely written before a physical temple was built, but David knows that the temple or the tabernacle that preceded it, was a living reminder that God himself draws near us in our pain. He dwells among us. In other words, God moves toward us in our crisis. He sees our struggles from up close. In fact, he can see them a lot better than we can, and he knows how to help. Both of these realities, of course, come together in the person of Jesus whose very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. Jesus has come near us in our pain, 
and yet even now rules from God's right hand, unmoving, working in the midst of your pain, even the seeming chaos of history for one purpose, which he will accomplish, the glory of God and our joy, which we will see in the end are the same thing. When crisis comes, as disorienting as it is, the Christian remembers there is one who is not surprised. There is one who is never spiraling out of control. There is one who never takes his hands off of your life. Truth number two, God's eyes will find out. One of the most difficult things about being a parent is that I don't always see what triggered the tears and the fights. I don't know who had it first. I don't know who started it. I don't know who pulled the curtain down, theoretically. Maybe you can relate. Maybe in an exasperation, you as a grandparent or parent have said, I don't care whose fault it is. Both of you, just go to your rooms. How many conflicts in the workplace dissolve into... Uh, she said, she said, or he said, he said, or he said, she said. Wouldn't our criminal justice system work better if we could just see all the events on playback? If we didn't need to rely on testimony that we hope is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? If we didn't need to worry about human bias showing up in a process? Have you ever been overwhelmed with just how little you actually know? Friends, there are times as a pastor, I just have to tell you, I have no idea how to proceed. Compare this to the picture painted in verse 4 and 5. God doesn't just rule, he sees. He even tests. It's an image of intense concentration. What, it, like God is searching something out, and what is he searching out? He's searching out the truth. God isn't passive, he is at work Revealing not just actions for what they are, but our most closely guarded thoughts and our hidden intentions. God sees all of it and is, is searching it out. Here's why this matters, friends, is nothing, and I mean nothing, escapes God. He sees past flattery. He sees past self-deception. He sees past half-truths, cover-ups, and conflicting accounts. Of course, this is terrifying for those who are trying to hide something, who live in fear of being found out, but for the Christian... This is enormously freeing. It means that God already has seen the worst things that I've done to others and the worst things that others have done to me. He is aware of both. And he, in both cases, determines to do something about it. Which leads to our third truth. God's character will be seen. I realize at the end of verse 5 and 6, they just appear kind of alarming and strange to Western people. We don't like the thought of God hating the wicked, of hating anyone, let alone the thought of God raining down fire and brimstone. Woof. After all, does the phrase fire and brimstone preaching bring up positive or negative connotations for you? The image refers back to the sudden and final judgment God brought upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis that were destroyed in a rather horrifying way as fire and brimstone wiped them off the face of the earth. Many have speculated that this is why the Dead Sea is so dead today. 
This image comes up at several points in the Bible, including Jesus in Luke 17, Peter in 2 Peter 2, and John in Revelation chapter 20, arguing that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is only a small sign of what is to come to the ungodly, of something much more enduring and terrible. This becomes the very image the Bible assumes for hell. I, the idea feels pretty backwards to modern people. A scare tactic left over from primitive religion. Some of us may not go that far, but you ever wondered how essential God's justice really is to Christianity? You ever wished you could just give that part of it up? Why is it that David sings about God's justice of all things. After all, this is a songbook. Can you imagine singing about fire and brimstone on a Sunday morning? We imagine that anger and love are warring enemies. We can't imagine that God could be both angry and loving. But I have to tell you, in our own experience, we experience the exact same phenomenon. Often anger awakens as a result of love. Imagine you found out that your child had been hurt and abused. Is it right for you to get angry? Is it right for you to want the person who hurt them to face legal consequences? It is. To get angry is to not care. The more loving you are, it turns out, the more angry you will get. As strange as it might sound to have a loving God, we must have an angry God. We need a God who not only sees injustice, but says that it matters to him. And that a day is coming when it will be addressed. God will respond how we would if we knew what he did. This reality is a comfort for many of our brothers and sisters around the world facing injustice as a daily reality. It's easy for those who live in relative comfort and freedom to raise an eyebrow at the wrath of God. But when the air around you, as it is for so many around the world, is swirling with daily injustice, when everything in you wants to take vengeance into your own hands, for your suffering to matter to someone enough for them to act, the vengeance of the Lord is good news. Even so, Christians are sobered by the fact that apart from God's intervention, we would be on the wrong side of that justice. We are not so different than the so-called wicked. Because they, Christians, like the rest of mankind, are not Christians because they performed better, because they did the right things, because they figured something out, because they were so intelligent or moral. We all failed to love and depend upon the one who made us. Before Jesus intervened, we all only chose ourselves as Lord and Savior instead of him. And the very essence of betrayal. And because of that state, because we have done that over and over again, and human beings have been doing that ever since the fall of mankind, we all come under this final form of fiery 
revenge. This is not something that anyone, particularly me, wants to say with a smile on our face. But we have to say that what makes the glorious good news of the gospel so sweet is because this was the portion of our cup. This was the cup we were going to drink. Revelation 20 warns anyone that has rejected God as Lord and Savior, their portion, notice that language, their portion will be in the lake of, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. A second death. Friends, the difference between the righteous and the wicked here is not so much that one does more good things than the other. The difference is that the righteous have turned to Jesus for their rescue. The righteous know that they could not save themselves. The righteous have set their hopes only on the good news of the gospel. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is the righteous don't hope in a safety that they can manufacture on their own, on a mountain they could fling to, but on the Lord as their only refuge. So long as God's character and God's promises are true, we can stand. Christians can weigh advice of others in crisis without being controlled by fear. They can even talk back to their own hearts in the mirror. They can even stand in a crisis. Why? Because Christians know what this, this, the end of this, this uh, psalm, verse 7, points to when it says, the upright shall behold his face. Christians have seen God's face, and they have seen it in the person of Jesus who walked into another crisis, the crisis of his own death, confident of his father's control only to be pierced by the arrows of his enemies, only to have his foundation destroyed. The only one who is truly upright in heart drank the cup of wrath reserved for the wicked, that they might not fa face the fire and sulfur and scorching wind, that they might not face the second death, which Jesus as judge is returning to bring. When we behold Jesus as our crucified, risen, and reigning king, we see the goodness and justice of God more fiercely than the summer sun. We know that a day is coming when we will see God's goodness and justice shown off for all to see. We know that there is, there, it might be even be in our lifetime in small measure, but we know that there is a, a, com, a coming day at the return of Christ when it will be seen in full display. A day of vindication is coming, and Christians will say together before their God, I knew it. I knew you could be trusted. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 puts it, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have fully been known. In closing, I want to leave you some practical tips when it comes to facing your own crisis. First, this kind of confidence in crisis, which I think all of us are attracted to, we want to be the kind of person that's good in a crisis, doesn't crumble or spiral. This con confidence in crisis, it is a sign of Christian characters. It's a sign of a heart that the gospel has taken root in. But like any other part of Christian character, it takes time to develop. So when you see yourself panicking and in despair, be patient with yourself. 
It takes a community, in fact, speaking into our lives, reminding us of what is true. And the word of God, it takes digesting the word of God as a daily meal if we ever hope to endure the unpredictable, the unovercomable. You want to prepare for a crisis? Keep your nose in the Bible with desperation, not knowing what you're preparing yourself for. And keep yourself among God's people, worshiping his name, around people who can see you when you're spiraling and help. Number two, even while this confidence is prepared for before a crisis, God so often uses crisis as the means of refining this confidence. The word that God uses here, that David uses, is for uh, test. It's test, right? So this, uh, it's a and God tests the righteous and the wicked. It's the image of a jeweler processing uh, a precious metal, trying to get rid of all impurities. With that heat, it causes it to become more pure. Only God, can, only God we have to just say this, in his wisdom and his power and his kindness, can use crisis of all things to pull back the curtain on our sin and to change us into something better. There's always a potential in suffering. I didn't point this out, others have. You always, and suffering will never leave you the same, especially significant suffering. The only option you have is whether to become bitter or better. That sounds cheesy, but that's what happens. We either harden or we soften to God. Lean into the testing, even as you mourn and ask for it to end. Pray that it might have its necessary effect on you. Number three, one of the best ways to stand in crisis is to talk about it. As our passage warns, we need to be careful about the voices who speak into our lives during crisis. But the worst thing you can do in crisis then is to isolate yourself and pretend all is fine. Remember that Psalm 11 is a prayer. The first place David thinks to go to in crisis is to the one who not, not only already sees it, not just to ask for his help, but to remind himself of what remains to be true. He doesn't turn in condemnation about God, to God. He, he says in the midst of it, yet this is where my confidence lies. This is where my sure foundation is. This is where the refuge to which I can flee. Find those who can help you pray in these ways. Lean into Christian friends who listen well, who don't just respond with a quick advice or cliches. Find friends whom you can be honest with about your deepest fears and look to them to help you work it out. Number four, determine to value what is uh, enduring versus what is temporary. In crisis, we are prone to value security over character, temporary outcomes over final results, saving face over gospel witness, our temporary goals and dreams over the coming kingdom. Ask those you love, am I being, do you think I'm being driven by fear in this decision? Am I only being motivated by immediate results do the dreams and goals perhaps need to change and be open to their response? Number five, 
This kind of faith is active, not passive. Notice verse 7. It doesn't just say that the Lord loves the righteous. What does it say? It says, he loves righteous deeds. This can be also translated in the Old Testament as just deeds. Especially in times like these of national crisis, we need Christians to be forerunners in fighting for justice and truth because we know what our God loves. We don't resort to violence like the wicked, but we are also not passive fleeing from cultural debates. Christian standards, Christian ends and methods will clash with others. It doesn't matter what political party you affiliate with. But one of the marks of Christians in crisis is that they are active in what is good and right and just. By way of clarifier, number six. Sometimes, as much as we've said to f- that flight is where we do not want to end, flight may be the appropriate response. A woman enduring physical abuse should seek safety and legal protection. When college debt begins to stack up, you may need to adjust your plans. When Saul hurled a spear at David's head, what did he do? He got out of the room. Wisdom, in fact, may require you to flee. But when you flee, you do so because you want God to receive the glory he is due. You do so motivated not by fear, but by love. And I recognize sometimes it's hard to know when that's actually the case. We need God's word. We need the community that he's given us, sometimes to see ourselves and our motives clearly. But now I want to end by, well, where the psalm goes, in prayer, asking God for wisdom, as I recognize so many of you are in crisis where you're not sure the right response next. Would these trees be your comfort? Would the gospel be on the forefront of your mind? And know that this church wants to help. Would you pray with me? Lord, we uh, come to you as those who belong to you. You created us. And you created us to worship you, to depend upon you as Lord and Savior. To rest naturally in your character, and we just don't. The reason we panic and despair is because we become forgetful, Lord, and I'm saying that to me. We need your help to even as we're not sure how to see right, we're just looking for the exit ramp, we need to know what remains true and always will be. We need to know that, God, your throne is not moving, that you will see, see truth, you will see things as they are, and eventually we're going to confess with all your people, we knew we could trust you, your goodness and justice, you were good and just to me. We need to know that those are true, and we know we can only know that they're true by seeing Jesus, who endured perfectly, who went through his own crisis to bring us near, who gave us God and promises to finish what he started. We trust in his perfect and holy name and help others to navigate crisis in a Christian way. We pray all these things in the name of the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.